Good morning. We are thankful that you are here this morning. Appreciate the good crowd gathered together. Appreciate the worship that we've already been able to participate in. Carl's choosing of songs and leading us in those songs. Brother Bill's prayers. Appreciate James and James and Lance. That's either a law firm or maybe a bad singing group. I don't know from the 70s. Appreciate James and James and Lance and leading our thoughts there in the Lord's Supper and our uh, partaking of that together in our offering. Uh, we've been talking about this a little bit in our class in the adult classroom number one on Sunday morning, but the importance of our fellowship and in particular the importance of our worship together is, is very important. The opportunity that we have to encourage one another. I talked about it a few weeks ago in that class, but maybe sometimes the better idea of worship would be if we were all sitting in a circle and, and facing each other in the sense that we could encourage one another. It's not very conducive, of course, to our setting here, but the idea that we are to be encouraging one another, not just necessarily sitting in pews or behind one another, but encouraging each other through song, uh, through our time together in prayer and taking the Lord's Supper. And we appreciate, as we always do, all the men who take part in leading us in that regard. So we appreciate that you're here. We do have several visitors in our midst and some who are not quite visitors, but may be visiting with us again. And we're thankful that you're here this morning. Uh, as Gary said in his announcements, there's always a lot going on here. And we hope that you will take one of our bulletins or some of our information and uh, keep up with what all is going on and be a part of anything that you can. Did you know this morning, did you know as we begin, that every minute, every minute, 250 babies are born? Every minute. Now, as I was looking at that stat, it was one of those things that I wasn't quite sure if that was amazing or not. It kind of sounds like a smaller number when you think about it, but when you think about the grand scheme of things, and if we extrapolate that number out, that would be 360,000 babies a day. Now, for those of you who are college football fans and particularly like that team up the road that wears orange, that would be three Neyland stadiums, three football stadiums full of babies every day that are born. I say that to say or ask, maybe you remember meeting your child or your grandchild for the first time. Some of you here may not have experienced that if you've not had children, but maybe you recall meeting that child or grandchild for the first time. It's not always sweet and nice. Sometimes it's a great memory and it's very encouraging. I would reckon that we should, of course, mention, even as our congregation's been affected by it here recently, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes, unfortunately, there's even death involved. It's not always the way that it's painted on television as something that's nice and clean and, and happy in that moment. Sometimes it's very scary and there's a lot of worry that goes along when a baby is born. Uh, but I would suggest to you by those numbers that it is a very fairly common occurrence. It is something that takes place quite often, especially in our world today. Think back almost 2,000 years ago. I, I realized that, realize that the birth rate in 1 BC or 1 AD or around that time, the birth rate wasn't exactly uh, what it is today. But, but still, you might suggest that it was a very common thing for babies to be born. But on this day, of course, almost 2,000 years ago, what we might consider to be one of the top five greatest days in the history of the world in a, in a very common sense, a, a baby was born. I suppose it was miraculous, of course, in the sense of there was a virgin birth. But at the same time, God chose to send his son in a very simple and common way. Because I think about this sometimes, God could do anything he wanted to do in any, any fashion. I mean, he could have sent Jesus to the earth like, uh, like the Superman movie. You remember the Superman movies, like in some kind of egg or spaceship, you know? He could have appeared in the middle of a field out of, out of anywhere. I reckon that God could have sent Jesus to this earth in the form of, of a fully grown male. 
an adult. Jesus could have just appeared out of nowhere and come to this earth and, and it would have still been the son of God. But he chose to do so in a very common manner. In fact, I'm surprised sometimes the way the Bible uses it. I'm not meaning to question the Bible in any sense, but surprised when the Bible references, references the birth of Jesus sometimes that, that it's very simple. John says at the beginning of John in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And you go on to verse number 14 when the birth is actually talked about, and John says very simply, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's kind of like some of those small towns, you know, around these parts of the woods here in, in uh, Tennessee. If you sneeze when you go through it, you'll miss it. I mean, if you're not careful, John just kind of says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, well, what does that mean? Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, and the title of our lesson, not only this Sunday, but next Sunday, comes from this particular passage. But Paul says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Again, there's so much there in the book of Galatians that if you're reading through it, as you come to Galatians 4, 4, you might blow right past it, not even recognize the powerful way, the powerful statement that is made there. It is a great and important day in the history of the world, but yet a very common manner in which the Son of God comes to this earth. Now, as we get further into our topic, we, of course, must acknowledge here that many people in the world choose the end of our calendar year to celebrate this particular day. We choose as members of the churches of Christ in a typical fashion not to do so. And maybe that's another sermon for another time. We know that there is no biblical religious authority necessarily. December 25th is, is the day of Jesus' birth. But if we're not careful, what happens is instead of finding the middle of the road, so many times on this earth and certainly in our current political climate, in our world, we treat things as left and right, and we say, well, you need to be right, and, and you don't want to be left. But, but if we're not careful, what we create is two ditches on either side of the road, and we go from one ditch into the other ditch instead of saying, staying on the center of the road. And if we're not careful, what happens is we say, well, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was born on December 25th, so we're not going to talk about it in the month of December. But what happens if we're not careful is we never talk about it. We never hear a lesson on the birth of Jesus. We may not celebrate it in December, but why can we not talk about it in May or June or certainly even in July? This idea, as Paul says, that of when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, is still a wonderfully powerful idea to consider, to think about Jesus, the son of God, coming to this earth. And what I'd like for us to do is to take a two-week study over the course of the next two weeks, God willing, and think about this moment. <coughs> Pardon me. What I'd like for us to do is think about it, first of all, from the perspective of Matthew this week, but if you'll be back with us next week to think about Luke's perspective. Those are the two main occasions that we read about in the different gospel, different accounts of the gospel. And in Luke, we know that Luke was the beloved physician. And so when we think about the, the way that Luke gives us some details... I think it would be beneficial if we took a look at that. But this morning what I'd like for us to do is to think about what Matthew has to say. And if we talk about what Matthew has to say there in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, it's important for us to think about the fact that Matthew was a Jew who was writing to Jews about a Jew. 
That's going to sort of set the context for us as we think about everything that Matthew has to say there in chapters 1 and 2. Matthew was a Jew, and he was writing to people that would understand him, and he would understand them, and he's writing about somebody that you would think that they might understand, but he's having to share this important idea or concept with them, and so he chooses a very important key. And if you're filling out your outline there from the bulletin, Matthew's important key, the key to his discussion about the birth of Christ is the idea of fulfillment. When we think about fulfillment... I think you understand a little bit. We're going to talk about prophecy here in just a few moments. But, but Matthew is going to spend several verses discussing this idea of the fulfillment of things that were done or written aforetime. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. I think we've done this a lot here lately as I was even typing this out in my outline and to put it on the screen. I thought, you know, I feel like we've, we've talked about this a lot, whether it was the plan of salvation or God's scheme of redemption, whether it was the book of Exodus. We keep going back to Genesis chapter 3. And rightfully so, because we read about the fall of man there in Genesis chapter 3. But there in verse number 15, God says, as he's talking to the serpent specifically in that moment, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What God is saying to the serpent and by essence, of course, through his word to everyone is that someone would come in the future. He says it's a son of Eve. A son of Eve would come in the future and this son of Eve would destroy evil. He would destroy evil. And so he's making this promise that someone is going to come who could do that. Now, in that scheme of redemption, even as we talked about it earlier this year, the next big moment comes when God singles out Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, God tells Abram at that time, Abraham, that through him, all nations would be blessed. So if you're keeping score at home, he says, of course, that then there would come a one who would destroy evil, who would destroy the serpent. He comes and says to Abraham, through you, through your seed, all nations shall be blessed. It's a very specific promise. Of course, after that, we meet Judah, a great grandson of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12, we talked about this. If you recall the Sunday that I had to stand down there and preach as we talked about Jacob and Joseph. And at the end of that story, we talked about it just a moment. We touched on it that Sunday morning. But there is the statement made by Jacob to Judah. In Genesis chapter 49, that again, a promise that through the line of Judah, a king would come. So if you're keeping score, and the people were probably, some of them that would know, would remember, and it was handed down that this promise was made to Eve, and the promise was made to Abraham, the promise is made to Judah, that a king would come. And so the first king comes. The first king is here, and it's King David. And by the way, he's a hero, right? He's got the little boy David and he's got his little stones. He's going to slay the giant Goliath. He's a hero, but he's not the one. He's not the one who would kill the serpent because we know that while he's a hero, he is far from perfect. In fact, we see his life riddled with sin at different points. And he is the first king, but he's not the king. He's not the one. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise is made to David that the king would come through his line. Again, a continuation of these things. A promise is made by God. But as David dies and, and goes on, son after son and generation after generation come from his line and they all fall to sin. 
They turn out to be people who give themselves over, some of them wholeheartedly, to sin. And if you've ever done a study of the kings, by the way, very interesting, of course, in a, a setting to study that, but many of the kings are referenced as either being after their father, David, or not in the way of their father, David. He's not their father, their exact birth father, but there's reference back to David. These sons and these children and grandchildren of David, those who would come after him, they pretty much just run Israel straight into the ground with all of their sin. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians take over and they pretty much wipe out the children of Israel as a nation in a sense. But through all of that, and we've talked about it. We talked about it with Daniel here in our class on Wednesday night a while back and these other things. But through all of that sin, through all of that terribleness, there's the prophets. The prophets of God are continually speaking to the people. We know that the prophets were not just foretellers. They might sometimes tell the future, but they were foretellers. They would go before God delivering his message. And these prophets, these prophets through all of the destruction, through all of the terribleness, through all of the sin, these prophets continue to speak about this king. They continue to say there is one coming there is this king who is going to come. For hundreds of years, the Jews are waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting for this king to come and do what they expect him to do. And again, the key to Matthew's discussion of the birth of Christ is this idea of fulfillment. You see, as we said in our beginning, despite the way that it's mentioned in sort of just a very common way, the seemingly minor way in which the birth of Jesus might be mentioned in our mind, this is one of the greatest days in the history of the world. I suppose that, of course, we might say number one is that fateful Friday as the Son of God hung on the cross and He shed His blood and He died for my sins and for the sins of the world. That might be number one. But, of course, maybe number two is three days later. Three days later, He rises again and He said He was going to do it. He made a promise. He told Him He was going to die, but He promised that He would rise again. And if He didn't rise again, this is pretty much worthless to us. But, of course, He couldn't die and if he didn't, he couldn't rise if he didn't die. And he couldn't die if he wasn't born. It's not just that he had to be born, but that this is a fulfillment of the promise. That one would come who would kill the serpent. And as all of these people are saying it and pointing the way, we come forward to the book of Matthew and we meet that exact moment. As we think about the idea of fulfillment, I'd like for you to consider a few passages with me. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse number 15. When we think about the things that the people would have heard for years upon years pointing the way, we think about Jeremiah 31 and verse number 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. We're going to go back and forth for a few moments between those Old Testament passages and the book of Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, we see this idea and you actually see the verse quoted. The one thing that Matthew keeps coming back to time and time again was this was fulfilled. If you have your Bibles and you're looking at Matthew 2, it's verse 17. You see it in other places. I'll point one more out to you real quickly, but verse number 5. For thus it is written, so that it might be fulfilled. Matthew is trying to, and we're great at revisionist history, right? We want to go back to the people that, that don't understand. We want to shake them. We want to say, don't you get it? Don't you understand? And that's what Matthew is doing in a sense when he says that it might be fulfilled. So it was written 
And you see the quotation from Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. And by the way, Jeremiah said it 600 years. And of course, that's not an exact date. But some 600 years before Matthew is going to write these words, before it's going to happen, Jeremiah says it. And in Matthew 2, Matthew in his writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit quotes it to help people understand that this is the one. He is coming. He has come. He is the king. He is the one that is spoken of who could kill the serpent. We think about Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. Again, an Old Testament prophet writing 740 years. It's one thing if I say, you know what? Tennessee is going to win the national championship. All right. That might be this year. That might be five years. We won't get in that discussion now. All right. That could be 10 years. It's one thing if I say that. It's another thing for 740 years beforehand that Micah says, but you, notice he says, Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old of everlasting. Micah is pointing forward to Matthew chapter 2, and I quoted it for you or asked you to look at it just a moment ago when Matthew says there. And notice the context. I mean, I know the general context, but what's happening there? That Herod is wanting to know where this person is. He's got it in mind. He's thinking about it. He says, where is he going to come from? Where is he going to be born? And they said to him, the prophet said in Bethlehem of Judea. 740 years, it's one thing to say that something's going to happen in the future. It's another thing to name the place that it's going to happen and to be right about it. And then even Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14, a passage that may be more familiar to you as you think about prophecies that you are aware of. But Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 14, it's some of the passages that you might hear songs sung of as we get to the end of the year. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And of course, again, in Matthew chapter 1 and verses 22 through 23, Matthew says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled. Matthew is taking what is happening in that current moment. Of course, he's writing it later, but pointing back towards what was said. 700 years before fulfillment. Jesus is no mere human. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And Matthew is pointing the way towards that. He's saying this is the one. This is the promised child. This is the one who can kill the serpent. But he doesn't just say it. Maybe you've met some of those people. We sometimes make fun of them, maybe a bit unfortunately. We, we call them kooks. We say they're crazy. They're talking about the end of the world or they're saying that things are coming. Matthew's not some crazy person. He's pointing back towards the prophets. He's giving them this idea of fulfillment. And what I think is interesting is that when Paul says it in Galatians 4, as we read a few moments ago, Paul's, again, seemingly passing statement. Just if you're not careful, you go right past it. That when the fullness of time was come, I think is something completely powerful, even as we consider what time that was. In the last few moments here in our lesson, I'd like for us to consider three things for you to take, maybe a little bit outside of the Bible, although it's connected, but to think about when the fullness of time was come. Question, why did God wait thousands of years before sending Jesus? As a matter of fact, 
Think about the garden again. Genesis chapter 3. Why did he not send Jesus right then? I mean, that would have cut out all these years of suffering and problems, wouldn't it? Why didn't he send Jesus right there in Genesis chapter 3? They eat of the apple. He realizes that they realize they've sinned and he sends his son. Why not then? Why wait? Well, a couple of things to consider. First of all, the connection that is made in the passage that we're looking at. You think about what Matthew is saying here and this idea of the fullness of time. Matthew connects the New Testament, as we have in our Bible, with the Old Testament. But more specifically, he connects Jesus with the Old Testament. He takes the time to say these things and connect Jesus with the Old Testament. Go back to Matthew chapter 1 there for just a moment. We begin Matthew chapter 1 with a section of scripture that most of us would rather just avoid. Because when we read about him in the Old Testament, if you ever get one of those passages for the scripture reading, you know, you just kind of shrink your shoulders and think, oh no. All of the genealogies. Matthew begins by giving us the begats. The genealogy that's listed there of the begats goes back through, notice, David and Judah and Abraham. All those promises that we read about in Genesis going forward through 2 Samuel, Matthew says, I'm connecting Jesus with all the way back to Abraham. And what's interesting is through that genealogy and even getting into these things, notice in verse number 16, we're going to talk about this next week, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Why is Jesus not begat of Joseph? Because Joseph wasn't his father in the sense. We'll get into some of those other things with the prophecy and what Luke has to say next week. But Matthew connects the Old Testament to Jesus. He's writing as a Jew to Jews about a Jew to help them see that even as the, some of them are going to miss it, that this is the one who has come. Why was this the perfect time? Why was the fullness of time come? Well, one reason is because of the connection that Matthew is able to make here and go all the way back through these various prophecies that are fulfilled. Which leads us to our second point, which is the prophecy. God gives enough time for prophecy and for something better. We don't have time this morning to get into all the details of prophecy. It's probably a whole set of classes in and of itself. But, but prophecy needs time. Again, right? I mean, if I, if I say I'm going to eat today, that's not much of a prophecy. I, I'm going to go eat lunch here in just a few moments and we're, we're going to go about our day. That's not really a prophecy. Prophecy needs time. We've already put up 600, 700, 740 years. But prophecy also needs proper timing. Again, if I could give you a year that a team's going to win the national championship or the World Series or whatever, now we're talking about true prophecy. It needs specific details. And it needs, of course, exact fulfillment. Prophecy needs all of those things together for it to be true prophecy. I could have stood there in the Old Testament and say, hey, somebody's going to be born. It's not prophecy. But those prophets who, by inspiration of God, are able to tell people these exact details, give them enough time and all these things so that it could be exactly fulfilled, that's prophecy. The fullness of time was come because God didn't just say something today and it came true tomorrow. Although that's the case with God. But years and years, hundreds of years later, it's still true. And God's going to keep that. But even in this idea of prophecy and something better, we needed the old law. Or the people that at that time needed the old law. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 24, Galatians 3.24, Paul refers to the old law as a tutor or a schoolmaster. You know, think about it this way. 
we don't get diplomas after the first grade. At least not, you know, a high school diploma. You don't get your diploma when you go through first grade. We need time. We need schooling. We have to go through all those years before we're allowed to get a diploma because we have to be taught. We have to learn. It would take almost 4,000 years for man to be ready. When we think about the fullness of time and Jesus coming to be born, it would take almost 4,000 years for man to be ready. The old law was a tutor. It was a schoolmaster. The law couldn't do it. The old law could not do it. And man wasn't ready. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. His son came to this earth and he shed his blood so that there might be a new covenant, a new law, the shedding of blood that could take away the sins of the world. It was the fullness of time when Jesus came to be born because the prophecy was ready and those things were going to be fulfilled. But then think finally with me this morning about the census. If you've got your Bibles, go over to the account of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We're going to talk a lot about Luke next week, God willing, but, but I think this is such an important point as we think about the fullness of time. In Luke chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4, we see Luke writing to Theophilus. And he talks about the purpose for writing. He talks about what he's doing here. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Go over to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Go over to Luke chapter 3, again, the first two verses. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate became being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia, and the region of Trachodius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. While Ananias and Sapphias were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Why was this the fullness of time that Jesus was come? The census that is mentioned here by Luke in Scripture, the census perfectly links Jesus to the history of the world. There's no doubt who Jesus is and that he came. There is a firm historical framework for Christianity right here in the beginning of Luke's account of the gospel. There's no guessing. There's no arguing who he was, or maybe it's not him, we're not sure. No, Luke records for us. This is not some make-believe. This is not some once-upon-a-time religion. This is not some land far, far away. We have firm historical records through the census that the Son of God, being born of a virgin, came. He's going to be registered just as all the people were going to be at that time in a real place to real people in a way in which can be recorded for the world to know. You know, it's interesting. Many of the world religions don't deny Jesus. They may deny that he is who he says he was. They may deny that he was the son of God, but they're not going to deny. Why? Because Luke records for us in a firm, historical fashion that the son of God came. That he was registered with his family. He was born at that time. And I hope that as you consider that, not only this day, but God willing, you'll be back with us next week and we'll talk about it a little more. Recognize that when the fullness of time was come, whether that's the prophecy or the connection that Matthew's making, or even this census that connects Jesus to the world and to history, God sent forth his son. Don't miss the importance of this great day. Don't miss the hope that is there. If God 
keeps his promise to Eve, if God keeps his promise to Abraham, to Judah, to David, and even to bring his only son into this world, the beautiful news for us, the good news of the gospel, is that he'll keep his promise for us. That home in heaven that is waiting. That eternal place that is being prepared for us even right now. And Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that I may receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If God is going to keep that promise from Genesis 3, he's going to keep his promise for us. When the fullness of time was come, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. Next week, we want to get more specifically into the birth of Jesus. But it's important that we recognize its proper place in time, even in the framework of the history of the world. You remember there from Galatians 4, 4 and 5, as we read about Paul. Paul says in verse number 5 that he came, he, God sent his son, born under the law, to redeem. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. We don't have to only remember it in December. We don't have to only remember it in July. We need to think about it always because of its context and its place and how important it is as we think about Jesus' place, not only in a historical sense, but absolutely in the spiritual sense and what God was willing to do. As we conclude our lesson this morning, his birth is very important. But of course, we would be nothing without his death. We would be nothing without his shedding of blood. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We'll be singing to encourage you in just a moment that through the words of the psalm that's been selected that maybe you'll consider making that great commitment. Jesus did come to this earth. He was born of a virgin. He did shed his blood so that you could have a home in heaven. But it requires our obedience to the gospel plan of salvation that you might be baptized for the remission of your sins and that the Lord can add you to his church. Maybe you're here and you've done that. You, you turn your back on him, though, the sin enters your life and it gets in the way. And we forget not only about his birth, but certainly about his death and his blood. We kind of separate ourselves from God by the sin in our lives. We'll be singing as well in just a moment to encourage you that you would come back to him. Don't leave this day with questions in your mind about what would happen if Jesus were to keep that promise in return or your life were to end even this day. Leave with the peace of God, the peace that comes from the Prince of Peace that you can have a home in heaven by being faithful. If you need to make a change, would you do so as we stand together and as we sing?